Good morning. A victim of a police murder is buried. Migrants come to New York. We have exclusive coverage from Red Hook. And Representative Ilan Omar is removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday morning, February 3rd, 2023. The United States is tracking what officials are calling a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon spotted over U.S. airspace for a couple of days. But the Pentagon says it decided not to shoot it down over concerns of hurting people on the ground. One of the places the balloon was spotted was Montana, which is home to one of the nation's three nuclear missile silo fields at Malmstrom Air Force Base. The Pentagon says they've taken precautions to ensure it did not collect sensitive information. And the Philippines said Thursday it was allowing U.S. forces to broaden their footprint in the Southeast Asian nation. Thursday's agreement gives U.S. forces access to four more military camps and was announced during a visit by U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin with his Philippine counterpart, Carlito Galvez Jr. Today, Secretary Galvez and I also reaffirmed our mutual defense treaty commitments. And we'd note that the mutual defense treaty applies to armed attacks on either of our armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft anywhere in the South China Sea or the West Philippine Sea. We discussed concrete actions to address destabilizing activities in the waters surrounding the Philippines, including the West Philippine Sea. And we remain committed to strengthening our mutual capacities to resist armed attack. That's just part of our efforts to modernize our alliance. And these efforts are especially important as the People's Republic of China continues to advance its illegitimate claims in the West Philippine Sea. It's a big deal, Austin said at the news conference, noting the agreement didn't mean the reestablishment of permanent American bases in the Philippines. The tensions between China and Taiwan will be high on the agenda next week when U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to meet with China's new foreign minister, Kin Gong. Family and friends remembered Tyree Nichols with songs of faith and heartfelt tributes Wednesday, blending a celebration of his life with outraged calls for police reform after the brutal beating he endured at the hands of Memphis police. Harris says the beating of Nichols, a 29-year-old black man by five black police officers, was a violent act that violated the stated mission of police to ensure public safety. It was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today I was as a senator as a United States senator a co-author of the original George Floyd Justice and Policing Act And as Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. The George Floyd Justice in Policing Act is a package of reforms, including a national registry of police officers, discipline for misconduct, and a ban on no-knock warrants. 
Family members of other black men and women killed by police, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Botham Jean, and Eric Garner, were also at the service. Since Nichols' death, five police officers have been fired and charged with murder. Their specialized unit was disbanded. Two more officers have been suspended. Two Memphis Fire Department emergency medical workers and a lieutenant were also fired. And more discipline could be coming. In New York City, Police and sanitation workers cleared out the sidewalk encampment where a group of asylum seekers had been camping out for three days in protest of the city's effort to relocate them to a 1,200-bed shelter at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal in Red Hook. Video and photos taken by activists at the scene showed sanitation workers tossing suitcases into a dumpster and police removing e-bikes from racks and scaffolding outside the hotel. A handful of migrants had returned from the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal asking to be led back into the Watson Hotel where they'd been staying. They said the shelter at a remote spot on the waterfront in Red Hook was cold with outdoor showers and no privacy. This reporter took the ferry from Wall Street and cost $4, avoiding a long bus and subway trip to the terminal, where Representative Dan Goldman, the richest member of Congress with $250 million, said New York City is doing its best. New York City is actually providing the right to shelter, basic needs, food, transportation, that no other city or state on the southern border provides. Our needs are much greater here because of the responsibility that we feel for these migrants and these asylees. I'm happy to have been appointed to the Homeland Security Committee in Congress and will be working very closely with the Biden administration to see not only if we can get funding, but also one of the things that we continue to hear is a desire for many of these asylees to work. We're going to try to uh, expedite a process where we might be able to get them lawful access to, to work, especially while they're here. The terminal sat behind chain-link fences, some topped with barbed wire. Entry was through a narrow gate. Occasionally empty city buses came and went, while black suburban SUVs said to belong to the FBI parked nearby. The asylum seekers had small rooms in the Watson Hotel. The facility in Brooklyn is a large congregate shelter with beds just inches apart. Goldman was asked about unconfirmed reports of a violent altercation inside on a line waiting for food, but he insisted the shelter is safe. We asked about any uh, issues related to safety, and uh, we were told there's only really been one incident, um, which happened in the food line. Um, So, you know, there are security guards there. There are many employees who are monitoring the situation. But people are on top of each other. It's, there's no way around it. And it is, um, you know, it's, it, as I said, it's not an ideal situation for anyone. But under the circumstances, uh, it's, it's really positive. So um, we, we're going to have to monitor safety and make sure that that's not an issue that comes up. But so far, I think it's been, uh, it's been pretty good. And part of that is because... Generally speaking, it seems like the morale of the asylees and migrants that we spoke to is pretty positive. They're very grateful for having this uh, area to live in, to get free food, free shelter, to get a lot of other, uh, some transportation benefits. And they are running shuttles from here to Barclays Center, which is something that my team followed up on. It's very important to be able to get 
easy access into downtown Brooklyn. So, uh, so far, so good in that regard. It's about half filled right now. But outside the cruise terminal in the cold glare of the sun and wind, temperatures dipped into the low 30s, a coterie of social service providers say they're getting no cooperation from the city. Hey, uh, my name is Jim Schneider. I work at Dynamic Youth Community. We're adolescent drug rehabilitation in Coney Island, and we're here to see if we can help. We know there's a big humanitarian crisis going on in the country, but there's also a very big fentanyl problem going on in the in the in, the, in Brooklyn right now, and uh, we're looking to see if anyone can use our assistance today. And what was the reaction you got? Not very welcoming. Uh, we were at the uh, a hotel in Manhattan earlier today. We were told to leave. And we came down to the security gate down here today, and we were told to get on the other side of the gate. So I don't know if there's anybody inside that could use help with the drug problem. I'm sure there might be, um, but we're not, we were not given access today. And did you expect, have you been tried to call the city or find out what's going on? Uh, we were told to call the city, call the mayor's office, and that's where you can get a security badge or you can get screened, and that's how you would get in. But that's it. Why? That's what's a little frustrating in the past. We've been welcomed and we've been have had some really good conversations with people about what's going on. But today is, today is a different story. Goldman responded to this reporter that the Humanitarian Relief Center, or HERC, was just getting off the ground. We literally, as we were walking out, had a conversation with the supervisor of the, of the HERC who said that uh, they welcome having more of the social services, the community-based organizations coming in, setting up tables, providing their services. I, I think at this point they were getting it up and running. Um, I take them at their word at this point, and I think what they suggested is that for any organizations that want to provide services, that they reach out by email directly and make that request rather than just showing up. But if there's some coordination in advance, we got the impression at least that they're very open to having more services. Goldman admitted showers were outside, adding they had to be outdoors in the cold because water was heated by propane, an energy source prohibited by city regulations as a fire hazard from being used indoors. The one issue which we talked about is in order the, because the showers require propane to be heated, they have to be outside of the warehouse and it is cold when you walk from the area where you sleep out to the showers uh, and it will be really cold this weekend. So we, we already had a conversation with health and hospitals about potentially putting up uh, a tent and maybe some heaters on that route that you walk to and from the shower. But inside of the terminal, it's quite warm. There, there are no issues. Goldman, who is on the House Homeland Security Committee, agreed the facility was far from ideal. Cruise ships will return in the spring and the shelter has to be closed by May 1st. He says it's a problem for the federal government. We're going to have to talk to uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is a broader problem right now that is, you know, the, the basic needs are what we're focusing on. But uh, there's no sign that this is slowing down. And so, you know, the first step is to be to figure out how to house everybody. 
The second step is to figure out how to integrate them into our communities or how to find other communities, maybe elsewhere, that can integrate them. So we're just at the beginning of these conversations, but I do look forward to having them. Representative Dan Goldman, another dignitary present on Thursday, was Queens Assemblymember Catalina Cruz, asked by this reporter if the city was sending a message with the eviction of the Watson Hotel and tight security of the Red Hook facility. She says the city has a legal and moral responsibility. I don't want to venture into what message the city wants to send people. I want to tell, remind the city that they have um, not a commitment, but a duty to ensure that people are in a safe environment, that are housed. You know, I, I get that, that this is an emergency situation, but that in no way excuses uh, their uh, the requirements under the law. The re- Let us not even talk about the law. The requirements as, uh, um, as New Yorkers, you know, are self-imposed. We are the city of immigrants and we want to welcome people and we want to welcome them with dignity. That in no way excuses any of that and we're going to continue to be vigilant just and I want to remind people just because we didn't find anything uh, um, incredibly wrong put it that way today doesn't mean we're going to stop oversight doesn't mean we're going to stop asking questions doesn't mean we're going to stop making sure that people are treated with the utmost dignity that they deserve thank you Queens Assembly member Catalina Cruz you're listening to the news from New York City I'm Paul Durienzo In international news, a suicide bomber who killed more than 100 people at a mosque in a police compound in the city of Peshawar, Pakistan, wore a police uniform and breached a security checkpoint on a motorcycle. Pakistan's government blamed the country's Taliban, a group separate from the better-known Afghanistan version. The Taliban in Kabul denied involvement in a terror attack, but Pakistan's government dismissed that. On Wednesday, dozens of police officers in a rare move joined a peace march, demanding better protection. Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif's government reached out to his predecessor and now opposition leader Imran Khan, inviting him and other opposition politicians to a conference next week. Khan was ousted in a no-confidence vote in Parliament in April last year, a removal some say was instigated by the United States. A professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan and director of the Center for the Study of Islam, Junaid Ahmad, says the attack was horrific, but he adds it may have served a greater purpose to hinder Khan's chances in a new election. Usually what happens is that when some civilian leader does not finish their democratic term of five years, no one really cares. And the reason is because we have been, the Pakistanis have been cursed, unfortunately, with civilian so-called democratic politicians that have been that are no different from military military rulers that have looted and plundered the country or done you know worse. And Imran Khan was is supposed to be the solution to that, you know. And but but of course, I mean, we're talking about more than seventy years. Pakistan was founded in nineteen forty seven. It, it takes time to to remedy a lot of the effects of not only the horrible economic situation, but of course the issue of, of militancy and terrorism generated by the Afghan war supported by the entire Western political establishment. And I'm not talking about 2001. I'm talking about the 1980s. And, and then a second round of 2001 to 2000. And now when the Taliban come back to power in 2022. And what we have now is, is all of a sudden the militancy that during Imran Khan's three and a half years since in power, I mean, all of these kind of the terrorist actions that were taking place during the war on terror, there was a local Taliban faction in Pakistan called the TTP, the Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan. 
that was also aiding their brothers in Afghanistan in fighting the foreign forces, but were also targeting the Pakistani state because they believed that they, the Pakistani state were collaborating with that war on terror. Now, they were largely defeated in 2018 by heavy Pakistani military operations in the northwestern areas. Now that they feel emboldened because their brethren have come to power in Kabul, they have taken some actions, some terrorist actions in Pakistan. The Pakistani state is very, very angry at the Afghan Taliban for not putting more pressure on them. However, this particular action, they have distanced themselves from and they have said, we are not responsible. And we're talking about a group, the TTP, the Taliban of Pakistan, that is proud to take ownership of every single action that it does, terrorist action that it does in the country. So what many observers are saying is that this is not an issue of the typical discourse narrative of Islamic extremism, narrative of the Taliban coming in. This is about domestic politics. This is about keeping Imran Khan out of power. Imran Khan, who has been demanding elections because this current puppet regime has zero legitimacy in the country. The elections have been, that's all that they've been calling for. So what people now largely perceive is that these types of things are going to be happening to create this kind of national security situation in which elections have to be postponed indefinitely until Khan can be either assassinated or completely disqualified from politics. Imran Khan openly declared that uh, he had intelligence information that particularly one of the opposition political parties, and they've all come to, to kind of oust them from power, and still they are all kind of discredited in the eyes of the people. And they are the richest families in the country as well, by the way. For them, politics has always just cemented making money. That's it, just blundering the country. They paid off people to assassinate them, which seems highly plausible. We may see many more of these in the future as well. But I think that the positive thing one can say of 2022 is that the political consciousness and intelligence of ordinary Pakistanis has increased tremendously. That now that they can understand that these types of tactics they're using, this current regime government, puppet regime that serves the interests of both Washington and the current puppet regime to postpone the elections indefinitely and to just create, uh, once again, this type of national security situation in which militancy arises and so on and so forth. And the question of the popular insurgency of the country, of the people that want transformation, social justice, etc., that is put to the side. Junaid Ahmad is a professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore in Pakistan and director of the Center for the Study of Islam. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives voted to remove Representative Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Thursday as she accused Republicans of putting a target on my back. The eyes are 218, the nays are 211, with one answering present. The resolution is adopted. Right-wing South Florida Representative Carlos Jimenez proudly cast his vote against what he called socialism. Without a doubt, the democratic Jewish state of Israel is America's strongest ally in the Middle East and has a fundamental right to exist. 
Representative Omar has repeated anti-Semitic canards and perpetuated hateful tropes against the Jewish community, and her comments have compromised the ability of the House Foreign Affairs Committee to conduct its official business. Republicans say the removal of Omar and the removal earlier this week of other liberal Democratic stalwarts is just tit-for-tat after several Republicans had been removed from their committees by Democrats. But New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says the GOP is not being consistent because the right-wing Republicans are advocating violence. There is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. Another member of the so-called squad of young liberal women of color elected to Congress in recent years is Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. She says the GOP's motivation is race. No matter how embattled, no matter how racially profiled, no matter how targeted, she has pressed on for peace over militarization, human rights at home and abroad, a world where an education is a fundamental right, where gender equity is recognized. I want to live in that world. Let me the make it plain. The time is expired. Ilhan Omar is right where she belongs. The gentlewoman's Her time is expired. Is needed on the Foreign Affairs Committee. The gentlewoman's time has expired and she is no longer recognized. And Missouri Representative Cori Bush says hatred of Muslims is another reason. Republicans are waging a blatantly Islamophobic and racist attack on Congresswoman Omar. And I've said it before, I will say it again. The white supremacy happening is unbelievable. This is despicable. And another Democrat from Illinois, Jan Schakowsky, expressed her friendship with Omar as a Jew. My colleagues, I stand before you as a proud Jew and, and a proud friend and colleague of Ilhan Omar. I am just furious. We have seen all kinds of anti-Semitism from the other side of the aisle. And as Americans, we should be the gentleman's time has expired. Vote no on this. We need the gentleman's to time our has expired as Americans and me as a Jew. Omar, a Somali refugee, criticized Israel early in her first term, accusing supporters of the Jewish state of getting money from pro-Israeli lobbyists, claiming it's all about the Benjamins, referring to $100 bills. Omar later apologized. And another target of GOP ire, Democrat Eric Swalwell, dug up a tweet from Republican right-winger Jim Jordan. He read it into the record. I thought, we're going to hold someone accountable for anti-Semitism. Surely it's the author of this tweet. Kanye Elon Trump, October 6th, written by Chairman Jim Jordan. October 8th, what does Kanye say? I'm going to declare DEFCON 3 on the Jews. So surely this tweet came down, right? Came down, was deleted. No. Two more months, it was kept up. Two more months. 
So don't come here looking at us for anti-Semitism. Look in your own damn mirror before you ever come over here. And Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan cried in rage. Where are the free speech warriors today? The hypocrisy is obvious to the American people. You are showing who you all are, really. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar will not be silenced. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar, the gentlewoman's so time sorry, has expired. That our country is failing you today through this chamber. You the, belong The gentlewoman is no longer recognized, and the, the gentleman from Mississippi is recognized. Although Omar was eventually removed from the committee, there was doubt among members of both parties who feel removing members from committees is too partisan. In the end, the votes have been along party lines, another example of the deep divisions on Capitol Hill and across the country. And we go out with a song from the funeral in Atlanta for Tyree Nichols, A Change Is Gonna Come, written by Sam Cooke. It's been a long time And that's the news for Friday morning, February 3rd, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. Yeah.